Welcome to M4G Advocacy Media, the Journey Series podcast. I'm Crystal. I'm a co-host, and I have red glasses, brown eyes, brown hair, black and white shirt. And I have a white wall behind me, the white curtain, and across some plants. And hi, I'm Mark. I'm co-host of the Journey Search podcast. I'm a brown man with glasses, black and white beard, brown eyes. I'm bald, and today I'm wearing a blue shirt. Last week, we had John Mars for part one, and this week, we're going to do part two, so enjoy. Well, hello, everyone. I'm John Morris. Uh, I'm a white man uh, with dark blonde hair. I wear eyeglasses, and uh, today I'm wearing a blue and uh, pink striped uh, polo shirt. Um, and so I really try to to be mindful about the conversations that I'm happening, having, um, either as sort of the person on the receiving end, um, or as the person who is sort of leading that conversation. You know, my thought is, how can I maintain this person's attention um, and drive them uh, to take something, you know, from what I'm sharing? Yeah. That sort of leads us um, or reminds me rather of the, what you talked about in the, in our pre-interview there. And I guess during earlier today about um, having that, early experience of developing an integrated classroom and um, incorporating everyone's different learning style and abilities into the uh, curriculum. And I'm wondering, uh, how do we take a diversified approach or integrated approach to um, develop the systems that are in place now or further develop what we've got? Well, I think, I think that one of the, the keys that is often overlooked is uh, feedback. Um, not only um, the feedback that we receive from others, um, you know, sort of, that they've willingly and freely provided us, but also when we're sourcing feedback, where we're getting it from, um, who we're getting it from, um, and whether whether the people that you know sort of are giving us the check mark, all right, you've done this well, are the people that we really need to hear that from. Um, you know, I think uh, I think. Pretty often, I've become uh, pretty um, focused, uh, even within the travel industry, on the hotel space, um, because I think that there are easy victories that can be achieved there for improving physical accessibility. Um, you know, there's a standard; most hotels don't presently comply with that, and I think in you know a future remodel um, or a new construction project it's easy to get those things right. But I've realized that um, there aren't very many people uh, within the industry that understand um, 
the standards which they're supposed to be building to. Uh, I've had a number of, uh, of architects um, and designers reach out to me and they've said, hey, uh, you know, you say this on your website about what's required in an accessible bathroom, uh, but we think that this is right. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. Uh, what I've written is, is truthful. Here's how you can find it in the regulation and you'll understand that the design that you've shared is not compliant because of this. Um, and so, you know, I think in that circumstance with, you know, just physical accessibility, uh, we've got a lot of people coming out who are experts in name only. Um, they've attained their expert status because they've, you know, had so many years of service doing things the wrong way. Um, and so that is, I think, sort of a lesson that we can apply um, to every aspect of our advocacy work and projects and programs that, that interface with people with disabilities is, is our feedback coming from the people that we're serving? Right. Um, are they the ones informing the work that we are doing? Or am I using my own perspective um, to force something across that doesn't actually meet the needs of the people um, that this project is supposed to serve. Right. That is incredibly important. When a company or a business recognizes that um, they don't just want to check a box. They want actual experience. So they reach out to somebody else disabled that can properly teach them the procedures and they're, they're, they're adamant about actually getting it right and making it actually accessible. And that is economically makes so much sense because that's gonna bring more customers, more money, more profit, you know, the whole thing. But <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why that's not already a thing, you know. Some some it is, some some it is, but for the most part, no. I I think I think, you know, maybe maybe one example, and I know there's not total agreement on this within the disability community, and it's a debate that likely will continue for some time, but mm -hmm. um there is, uh, there's a corporate America has sort of force fed this perspective of people first language in the way that we refer to others <laughs> and in particular yeah. the disability community. Mm -hmm. um, my perspective has always been that identity first is the way to go. I know a lot of my you know, friends within the community agree with me. I've had conversations and debates with others who disagree. Um, but I think that uh, you know, something that is happening in, in pretty much every corporation around the country um, is that you know, people are being taught to refer to me as a person with a disability um, mm -hmm. rather than as a disabled person. And I think that sort of at the core for me, it's it's not so much the um, the language itself, 
um, that that is material. Uh, what I care about is sort of the underlying idea of, you know, where does my inability to do something come from? Right. And uh, if I'm a if I'm a person with a disability, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, suggests that it's my disability that's holding me back. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm a disabled person. It suggests, and you know, this sort of goes to the social model of disability. If I'm a disabled person, it means that I'm a I'm a person who is disabled by the environment in which I exist. And so prior to you know moving to a big city, when I was stuck at home with my family, I was stuck there not because I have a disability. I could, you know, I could go out, you know, I could go out. It was just a matter of I didn't have the tools to go out. The, the environment that I lived in was not accessible to me. There was no way for me to get from, you know, my parents' home to town or to the hospital without some, you know, grand uh, service uh, and very expensive uh, uh, grand accessible vehicle to come out. Whereas, you know, in Boston, um, I can go out to m many restaurants down the street. I can, you know, go to the train station. I can hop on the city bus. Um, and I'm much less disabled here than I am in many other cities around the country. And that's because the uh, infrastructure here is accessible. There are services that allow me uh, to gain the access that I need. Um, and so it, 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 I, I become much less disabled. And I think that that really is, is frustrating to me when I see companies say, well, you are a person with a disability and that's how we're going to refer to you. Um, and I, you know, I think that obviously everyone's personal preference with their own identity and the way that they're referred to should be honored. But I think that the reason that you know, industry, um, you know, has pushed this, you know, person first uh, sort of ideology um, has nothing to do with the person. They don't care anymore about you or me or our needs. Um, and they certainly are putting the focus and training people to recognize, well, no, he can't go into the swimming pool because we don't have a swimming pool lift. Um, no, they're saying he can't go into the swimming pool because he has a disability, not because we haven't made the accommodations that would easily allow him to take advantage of this amenity. Again, um, that's toxic. Exactly. And I think that that is sort of, um, no matter what I talk about, I speak at conferences on a lot of different topics in the travel industry, but now, no matter what you have brought me to talk about, I'm going to talk about the social model uh, of disability and compare that to the medical model um, and try to encourage people, even if they don't adopt, you know, the particular methodology that, that I prefer, um, I hope that they then recognize, well, yeah, if we make the accommodations um, if we create a universally accessible environment, then no one will be disabled. 
no one will be um, denied the opportunity to engage with us in our business. No one will be unable to be a customer. And I think that that really, um, if we're shifting this from, you know, sort of the right thing or the thing that you must do to the thing that returns your investment and creates opportunity for your business, uh, the social model is where we need to live. Right. Uh, you had said that the main government model has been, you know, human or person first. Uh, okay, so, uh, so disabled people are not human. Um, because they have totally twisted everything, and uh, the the purpose of a government, I, I would know. I have been lost on. Okay, I know what I was taught government it was supposed to be, but I can now obviously see differently. You know what it actually is. And it, it's about a hierarchy. And the, the main purpose of the government is supposed to be to give people what they need to be just to survive, to uh, keep them uh, alive, <laughs> to work, you know. Um, well, you know, if you don't put things in place to help those things happen, even for disabled people, you're not doing your job. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I think that one of the one of the biggest challenges with gaining traction within the government is that, you know, our government is supposed to be um, by and for the people. Um, but disabled people are seriously underrepresented within mm -hmm. the government leadership and in elected office. Um, it is extremely rare um, to encounter um, a disabled person in any government role, much less um, one such as the chief executive. Um, we do now. Um, have a, a senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, um, who is a wheelchair user. Um, there uh, are a couple of other amputees in Congress. Uh, the governor of the state of Texas is a wheelchair user. Um, certainly would like to see more initiative on behalf of the disability community from, from leaders, uh, you know, who, who do have disabilities and find themselves in office. Um, but of course, the challenge is building consensus when, you know, you are one person um, or a handful of people among a body of hundreds of decision makers. Um, if the disability community had their 25% representation in Congress, um, I think that there would be a lot more support uh, mm -hmm. for the community and the things that are needed uh, to make our society and our communities accessible. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it's sort of it's sort of one of those things where you know we uh i you know i i feel like you know sort of what comes first uh you know the legislators with disabilities who can push these things across the finish line um or the actual engagement of people in society that can generate the opportunities for disabled people to gain political influence and power um and so you know it's sort of you know if you lock someone away in a cupboard uh or in a home um you know they're not going to have the the same opportunity to engage um in their community and to gain you know the opportunity to seek elected office successfully there are a lot of disabled people who run for political office um but they're often you know the fringe candidate who did things independently and they don't have that wide base of support and the reason that they lack that is because for the vast majority of their life or perhaps their entire lives um they have been denied the same access to the the opportunity to build relationships uh secure the career um you know to to engage in their community in a way that would allow them to set themselves up for success in politics and um you know i don't see that changing anytime soon and that is depressing uh you know before my car accident i really did think that i was going to to find my way into politics uh one day i was really passionate about politics um now i think in this toxic political environment i don't really have any interest at all but if i did i feel that it would be much harder for me now um to attain political office not because i am you know any less accomplished than i might have been at this stage in my life had i not had the disability or for any other reason then i just don't have access to the same rooms and it's not too long ago i forget what state this was out of but a man was running uh he he was a uh held political office i think was running again for re-election to the county commission or to the to the mayor the the mayor's office um and he had to climb from his wheelchair onto the onto the debate stage um there was not any interest among people present who watched this unfold and saying well maybe we can move the podium everyone's podium or the table that you'll sit at down from the stage it's no we're going to 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 force this disabled man to face some indignity and i think that uh that is incredibly troubling um you know and at the end of the day disabled people need to be equitably represented in every aspect of society that means you know 25% of the people at the baseball baseball park uh watching the game should be disabled if we're truly equitable world 25% of people in elected office should be disabled and you know i'm not saying set a quota you know there's no mandate that you know every place in society should be equal and everyone should be equally represented because that denies the opportunity um uh, for people to distinguish themselves through 
hard work and effort that, you know, is really the lifeblood of the so-called American dream. But people need to have an opportunity to compete. Um, And I think that a lot of people um, have not even made it to the starting line through no fault of their own. And that infuriates me, but it also encourages me and inspires me um, to continue chipping away at the platforms, policies, and programs that keep disabled people from reaching their full potential. Yeah, that's incredibly important, but uh, it's it's hard to not get disheartened because it's like that um, feedback system we were talking about before. If we're doing all this to give people their feedback and the people that the top aren't listening or don't care, <laughs> isn't much this can happen. Yeah. It seems like more of a formality. We need to look like we care and act like we want to uh, be inclusive and listen to our customers. <laughs> but not really. We're ju- It's just a formality, you know, just... You know, it's It's to let people know that we're listening. Yeah. And I think, you know, as as Crystal, you pointed out earlier, there are uh, businesses and governments out there that are really doing incredible work in the area of including disabled people in the DEI discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, one of the one of the ways that I see this, I. I get a lot of emails from different newsletters that I've subscribed to or businesses that I've engaged with before. And I recently received um, an email from Coursera. They're sort of an online e-learning platform with, you know, courses that, you know, people have created on a lot of different topics. And uh, they were pitching to me um, a class, uh, that had to do in some way with DE&I. And one of the images that they used was of a man in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, and it was actually a, a true man in a real wheelchair, not like not a, a real disabled guy in mm. a real wheelchair that was his own to use. Mm. Um, and that is sort of, it's a small thing, of course, Uh, But that image made me think, well, hey, you know, maybe someone in there gets this. They didn't go onto some stock photo website and pull out a picture of a disabled guy that I've seen, you know, in a hundred different places or particularly in the travel industry, the woman standing up out of her hospital wheelchair, you know, in front of some grand environment like Angkor Wat in Cambodia or something, um, you know, that is to me, when I see those images used over and over again by companies, like how difficult would it have been to, you know, reach out to a disabled model um, to, you know, ask them to shoot a photo of themselves uh, you know, to, to use in your ad campaign, if you don't want to make a big investment, or if you do want to make a, a, a larger investment, you know, 
invite them out with your camera crew and get the photo that you need. Um, companies do this in a lot of spaces with a lot of different groups, uh, people who represent different identities. Um, and it's something that, you know, I think that we need to see more of. I think one of the things that frustrates me to no end is, you know, you get on the airplane and they play the video of the safety briefing. Um, and this, these videos uh, actually include, um, you know, employees of the company. Like they spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce these safety videos. Um, and they bring in employees from all across their company, um, you know, in to watch, uh, in to create the safety video. Um, and I've seen a lot of diversity represented in them. But what I've never seen is a disabled person. And I've never seen a wheelchair user. And I think, you know, one of the questions that I asked a few years ago was, well, gosh, what happens to a disabled person? What happens to me? in the event of an emergency evacuation of this airplane. And the airlines didn't have any good answers to that question. It's not something that they've thought about. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe that makes sense that someone like me wouldn't be in the safety video if there is no plan for me. Um, but it would be nice to see representation. And I think that I think that the lack of representation of disabled people, it stings a little harder when you can see that otherwise the company has made a big effort to be diverse and inclusive, just not for our community. Um, and that I think, um, that sort of is that surface level inclusion I think it should cause those other groups to worry a lot um, that maybe the inclusion that their company is promising them is really only surface level. Right. Um, it doesn't go into the deep, right. you know, the, the, the center and core of the organization. And, uh, you know, the easy thing is including people in a photo or a video. Um, but that is the first step and where you don't see that, um, uh, you can pretty much be assured there's nothing deeper going on there. Right. Um, so anyway, you know, I think that, oh goodness, it's frustrating and there are a lot of yeah. problems, but <laughs> I really do think that the solution to all of this is having conversations like this, uh, like we've had today and others that we've talked about um, with the people who actually have some decision-making authority, mm -hmm. wherever they be, whether they're in, you know, public, private industry, nonprofit organizations, the restaurant down the street, um, mm -hmm. you know, we need equal access everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that is a slogan that I've adopted for my work in terms of, you know, what is my goal? And it really is that equal access everywhere. Um, that's what I want to see. I'm not going to achieve it in my lifetime, not everywhere, but hopefully in my lifetime, I can achieve that. I can be a part of the work to bring equal access to a lot of places. And I think that that's how each of us have to look at, at it 
you know, what good can we do in our lifetimes? We're not going to solve every problem that humanity faces. We're not going to solve every problem that our community, you know, has to endure. We have to start somewhere. Exactly. And we can do a lot of things. Um, It's one step at a time, unfortunately. People are not going to be as, see it as urgent of an issue as we ourselves see it. Um, But if we can start making steps in the right direction, um, it's going to be better for us and for the people who are going to come after us. And uh, that really is the gift that we all have to give. You know, if we... How, just, you know, think of how many things we would not have today if the people before us had said, well, I can't get everything I want, so it's not worth the fight. Um, I don't think that we'd even have the light bulb. Um, <laughs> if people, so many, you know, years in the past had not innovated, uh, we might not even have the wheel, to be honest. So, um, each of us builds off the work of another. Um, nothing is ever truly independent. Um, and, you know, we can work not only for our own betterment, but for the betterment of a future for others. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get excited about that. I'm building a great future that might not impact me, but it will, it will impact others. And, uh, you know, depending on what you believe, some people believe that, you know, we're reincarnated. I'm not one of those people, but if you are, you know, build a better world for your future self, right? Right. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I keep going back to the whole toxicity thing, you know, uh, with what we've been taught and people we interact with and things like that. Think about all the things we would have already achieved. And if we were able to communicate with people without the gaslighting and manipulation and stuff like that, you know, uh, it's an arguable thing, you know, that there are much bigger problems in the world. Okay, I get that. But, you know, if we kind of do it to ourselves again, you know, uh, where when we have that toxicity and stuff, you know, then we're not able to work together because we don't want to work with somebody who's toxic and that's all those things we kind of push away from it, you know. Uh, But how are we going to advance as a society if we can't, achieve that you know i i read something recently um it was uh it was sort of a critique of a critique of a critique maybe um but it was talking you know we hear we hear a lot of things about um you know the environment right now um and sort of the perilous course that we're on um with climate change and you know there's a lot of disagreement uh on that many people um you know believe it entirely many people don't believe it at all um 
I'm not going to I'm not going to take a, a side since that's not my debate really. Um, but there is sort of a question. One of the one of the one of the things that you know people who um, you know are not believers in climate change bring up a lot is they say, well, you know, ten years ago they said we only had ten years. And 20 years ago, they said we only had 20 years or 30 years or whatever it may be. Um, and sure, you know, data is changing. Scientific opinion is, is, is adjusting to, you know, the, the, the new research that is being conducted. Um, that, that's fair. Um, but this article looked at sort of... Uh, a debate that that happened a, a long time ago well not actually all that long ago it's still going on at, at the start of my lifetime um and this was around the hole in the ozone layer and what was causing that and you probably remember from grade school i remember some lessons on this about the chlorofluorocarbons mm -hmm. the cfcs and some of our air conditioning systems um, that were really one of the big culprits in terms of the hole that was growing in our ozone layer. And the reason that that is not in discussion anymore is not because it was entirely solved. I mean, there are still, there's still impacts uh, occurring with our ozone layer, but the, the, the most alarming challenge with that, the gaping hole that was opening and, you know, was going to, you know, deplete uh, the layer of protection that we have from the sun has started to heal and close up. And the reason that's happened is because there was decisive action taken um, to phase out CFCs uh, in, in, in our air conditioning systems um you know in the in the cars that that we drive um and you know tremendous action was taken because we recognized that we had reached a certain tipping point and i think about that with disability advocacy in terms of what will the tipping point be um, sort of when will we have this recognition that there is a big problem in front of us? And I think that actually we're getting there. Um, and I think that one of the areas that we are, we're seeing this happen is birth rates are declining in the United States and in many other countries around the world, but it's most pronounced perhaps in Japan. Okay. And in Japan, they're having a crisis because birth rates are so low, it's definitely below you know, the, the, the factor required to replace the aging population as they die, but people are living longer and longer lives. And so more people are reaching uh, retirement age and sometimes have 20, 30, 40 years even of retirement ahead of them uh, that younger people who are working have to care for. And so I think that one of the reasons that we're going to see sort of a surge in accessibility in the future is to include disabled people in the workforce. Um, 
to include older people who have challenges to to maintain their ability to remain in the workforce. Um, Because, you know, it's no question that the retirement age in America is going to be extended out further. Uh, We're seeing a lot of protests right now in France. Uh, The president there has announced a plan to increase um, the retirement age in that country. Um, Sort of the trade-off for living longer is that we're going to have to work longer. Um, And we're not going to be able to afford people not contributing to the economy. Um, And so there is going to be, I think, a a renewed interest in doing this the right way and saying, well, you have a disability, Um, you know, no question about that. But how can we engage you in, you know, the common work that we do? Uh, How can we create an environment in which you can exceed, uh, in which you can succeed and excel in the workforce. Um, and I think that it's going, I think that is going to be the tipping point in terms of leading us to a world that is more universally designed. And I think that that tipping point is coming a heck of a lot sooner than we think. Um, definitely, yeah. Definitely. You've talked about a lot how, you know, it would be so smart. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I don't even know why this is an argument or a debate. Um, it would be so wise of people to make the world inclusive and accessible. Um, because think about our children. No, uh, think about us. Think about our parents that are coming of age are getting old, you know, and the elder elders, you know, um, if humanity is not able to thrive, regardless of their abilities or disabilities, um, <laughs> this is going to be a very, very sad situation going forward. And you know, their businesses are not going to go anywhere because people are not going to be able to get to them to do anything. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think right now, probably what we're living in is a period of time where things are going to get a little worse before they get better. Um, We see that. uh, Yeah. We see that with cutbacks um, to, you know, benefits and discussions and also, of, not just that sure. but pushback of people that are gonna argue and you know you know try to deny what's been going on and stuff like that I, we i'm i know that clearly but and it's hard to get other people on board with that understanding the whole philosophy and psychology behind it but come on people open their eyes yeah and you know i definitely i definitely am looking forward to the day when i will be able to say i told you so um well, and i think that i don't want to say that but you know well i i know i i think i think i i'm i'm not uh i'm not advocating for you know rubbing it in people's faces but um 
you know, I do think that there is an unrecognized, largely unrecognized opportunity that exists, um, you know, for business and government. Um, when we build an inclusive world, one where everyone can participate, then everyone will participate. <laughs> I don't think that there are people, um, not in any significant number, who do not want to have the ability to participate in society and in their communities. And so when we create an opportunity for that to happen, um, people will take advantage of it. Um, you know, people take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. Um, it is in our nature to strive for more, to want more. Um, and, you know, not only from the world, but of ourselves. You know, people, human beings drive themselves to more and to reach greater heights. Um, and, you know, that's why that we are, are such a, an innovative species. Right. Um, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see what, you know, what is to come of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not, you know. I'm not going to deny the fact that it is going to take a lot of work from a lot of people to achieve the ends that we'd like to see. Um, and I'm buckled in, I'm strapped up and, and ready yeah, to go. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and to be part of that journey. Um, but I also know that it's not something I can do on my own. Um, yeah. It's going to so, take a collective, you know, not just the disability. I feel like the disability community is totally, hold on, let's go, you know, and trying really hard to, you know, help each other and the disability community, but also the able-bodied community understand, you know, the whole, everything going on and all the issues and um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting and hopefully in a good way. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I'm confident. I'm confident that it will be, um, a good result at the end. Um, you know, we have seen sort of the opportunity for freedom, um, and greater opportunity delivered to so many people. Um, over the course of centuries of time. Um, and I'm confident that, you know, disabled people are going to get it. They're going to get it in some countries faster than others. Um, and we're already seeing that, um, you know, I think sometimes that we forget here in the United States that we are among the most privileged disabled people on planet earth. Um, certainly not the most privileged, but very close to it. And, um, you know, that is something to be grateful for. Um, but in my view, as the saying goes, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we need to continue working to build the foundations that, that people around the world can, can, can use as their example um, and always be striving for more. Mark, do you have any more? Um, yeah, just uh, one more question. Um, so uh, I'm assuming your website and blog talks about this, but uh, 
where can someone uh, who's disabled who wants to travel, where can they start? Or yeah, how great. should they get started? Great, great question. Um, you know, when I, uh, obviously having been a traveler before um, my disability, um, I knew how the travel process worked. But what I didn't know um, was everything to do with traveling with a disability. You know, how do I get assistance? Will my wheelchair actually fit on the plane? Is that even possible? Um, and so I had to do a lot of research when I started out to take that first trip. I didn't even know that a wheelchair taxi was a thing. Um, that's something that I discovered in the course of my research. Uh, I wasn't sure that public transit was accessible. Um, probably because I had climbed a lot of stairs and gone up a lot of escalators and subway systems uh, around the country. Um, and the reality is, yeah, some of them are not accessible. Uh, there is not full and complete accessibility. There are a lot of things that you can't count on. So um, my idea in creating my website, which is at wheelchairtravel.org, um, it's answering those questions for the first time traveler. Um, so there's a very detailed frequently asked questions and information section on the website that goes through you know, sort of what to expect uh, in traveling by air, um, in, you know, visiting hotels and traveling abroad for the first time. And I try to try to answer those core questions early and then invite travelers and readers to, to go a little deeper with me into looking at individual destinations, um, sort of looking at the accessibility infrastructure um, you know, one city can be very different than another. I'd much rather visit Philadelphia than New York City. Um, Philly, in my view, is a lot more accessible. Um, and it's not that far away, like a 45-minute train ride between the two. Um, and so there's a lot of variation. Uh, the United States of America is not a monolith. Um there is differentiation in culture and accessibility all over this country. And um, it's important to know, um, you know, before you, before you make the trip. And so um, tons of resources on the website, a uh, lot of advocacy too. Um, I'm, you know, fighting for a more accessible world of travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would love for others to join me in that, in that campaign as well. Um, I have one more question. Um, so, so I know <laughs> traveling, at, uh, if you talk about the airports, um, is a sore subject. They're horrible <laughs> at accessibility when it comes to that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that before we go? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest fears that wheelchair users have um, mm -hmm. when they're traveling by air is, am I going to get my wheelchair back in one piece? Mm -hmm. um, or for people who use other types of mobility equipment, is that going to come back in one piece? Uh, 
And for moms with strollers, they're worried about that too. I mean, the reality is, is that um, airlines do not treat wheelchairs with the care that they are due. Um, and, uh, you know, while they're not going to, you know, toss a 400 pound power wheelchair the way that they would, a um, you know, a suitcase or a duffel bag, um, there are still dangers inherent. Um, there are a lot of reasons that wheelchairs get damaged. It's probably not why, you know, you think, um, they are, I mean, they are not tossing your wheelchair usually. Occasionally, a lighter manual chair, chair might get, you know, thrown around a little bit. But, um, you know, the, the reality is, is that the reason wheelchairs get damaged is that they are, you know, we, we as disabled people think of our mobility devices as an extension of our bodies, um, key to our mobility, an important tool that we rely upon. And the place that we, you know, you think about this, where do you take the things when you're flying that are most important to you? Where do you take your kid? Where do you take your laptop? Where do you take your medication? You take that inside the airplane, mm -hmm. um, inside the cabin, under your seat, on your lap, wherever. Um, but inside the cabin, you don't put that stuff in the cargo hold. And the reality is, is that the cargo hold is where a lot of things that are not important get right. tossed and bounced around and thrown on top of each other. And a wheelchair does not belong there. Um, but right now, that's where they have to go. And uh, so they get damaged because they're in an environment that they're not meant for. Um, mm -hmm. And the plane bounces around and the wheelchair, you know, gets jostled and tipped over and, um, you know, mishandled, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not where it, it's supposed to be. Um, and so, yeah, wheelchairs get damaged. Um, you know, there are government statistics on that, which, which, uh, I think underrepresent the scope of the problem and the true number of chairs that are damaged. But in terms of very serious damage, it is rare. Um, less than 1% of the time in my view. And in, from my large sample size and data that I've collected from my own experience, it's a less than 1% chance that your wheelchair, you're not gonna be able to use it when you get off the plane. And so I think that, um, you know, I think that people should travel. Uh, you know, if the airline damages your wheelchair, they're liable, they're going to have to pay for it. They're going to have to, repair or replace it. Um, and I know that that's a frustrating process. Mm -hmm. It's harmful to some people. Um, but, you know, I think that sort of with, you know, in any case where there is risk, we have to calculate the possibility of it happening. Um, you know, what the problems are for us if they do. And in my calculation, and these are always personal, but in my calculation of risk, I think that the benefits inherent in traveling uh, far outweigh, um, you know, the problems that could arise should my wheelchair be damaged. 
And that may not be true for everyone. Um, but that's why we have to make that personal assessment. And um, I just, I love to travel. It opens my life to, to opportunity and joy. Um, I find so much joy in traveling and meeting new people and, and, and gaining new experiences that um, I would, I'd be willing to, to do just about everything else. I probably, um, I probably, I would say I would give everything to continue traveling, but I've, I've lost a lot already in my, in my car accident and I need this hand. So don't take this one from me. Um, but I, yeah, I would give up a lot, um, to travel and, uh, and maybe I have already, but, um, you know, I just think that, I think that there are tremendous things that await us all out there. And, uh, again, you know, all travel doesn't involve an airplane and it doesn't have to. Um, so, you know, I want to keep people open to the understanding that, you know, when we travel, it doesn't have to be to a faraway place. Um, you know, we can, we can do all sorts of things. We can ride the train. We can ride the Greyhound bus. Um, we can ride the city bus across town um, to open ourselves up to a, a new experience. And that really is what it's about for me. Um, I don't want to be cooped up in my apartment here in Boston. It's an incredible city. And, you know, I said yesterday, that I went to the Boston Marathon, um, it was raining. I didn't want to go outside yesterday, but I wanted to be out in the community and I wanted to travel. Even though it was less than a mile away, the finish line, um, I wanted to be there. I wanted to have that experience. And, you know, even though it wasn't everything that I dreamed of and imagined, um, it gave me a story. Um, and, uh, and I loved the experience, um, even though it wasn't as accessible as I would have liked. And it was raining and all of that aside, it got me out of the house. And uh, that's, that's what I live for. Um, and I hope, that, I hope that maybe that can inspire you to, to get out um, and, and live your life to the fullest extent possible. And if there are challenges and barriers that block that opportunity um, to join me in the fight um, and join many others in the fight um, to make the world more accessible to all of us. There are so many opportunities that could be had if it was only uh, more accessible. And like I said, you know, it all starts at the top and uh, it's obvious how the people at the top treat disabled people and it shows people like in the FDA how, that we're disregarded, you know, and how to treat us and the extension of what we need to get around, you know. Um, so, you know, it's a triple down process, you know, that we need to help people understand. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, Mark, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, 
Well, I didn't want to interrupt you if you wanted to add to Crystal's point. No, I think, you know, I think that obviously we all recognize that um, it's not just uh, the work that needs to be done um, to get us to where we want to go, but also the allies that we have to win in the process. And um, that's something that I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of different perspectives on how to win allies, but um, either way, I think it, it starts um, at the very least with a respectful hello, and then you can take exactly. it from there Absolutely. in the direction that that you think um, is best. And you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of trial and error. There are a lot of people that I've spoken to, and they did not want to return my hello, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned from that, um, and then I get to work seeking out another ally. Um, and I think that that really is the thing. It's uh, Sometimes I feel like when I'm, you know, I'm trying to get some support on something. I feel like I was when I was a a little middle schooler nerd trying to get a date with a girl. They mostly said no to me. And uh, that's fine. I had to keep working at it. And, um, you know, there is, uh, I think there is something better on the other side, you know, when we, when we achieve the success that we're looking for, um, might've been a lot of high, hard work, a lot of rejection, a lot of anger and frustration. And, you know, I know sometimes our blood is boiling and we're so angry, um, but have to cast that aside and, and get refocused um, in building the relationships that are necessary to get us where we want to be. And, um, you know, you may find some surprising allies uh, at the end of this and uh, some people that you thought would be allies that turn out not to be. Um, All of that is going to feature in this journey. Um, But the main thing is not not ever losing hope and not ever losing sight of the goal. Um, Lastly, John, how do people reach out to you What's the best best way they can contact with you? Yeah, so um, again, you can find me online. Wheelchairtravel.org is my website. I'm also on social media, Facebook and Instagram at uh, Wheelchair Travel. Um, that's the username. And uh, on Twitter, due to character limits, uh, I am WC Travel Org. Um, Wheelchair travel is one character too long, and Elon Musk hasn't responded to any of my tweets asking for that extra character. So um, we do, I live in hope there as well. I'm going to get that extra character one day uh, on Twitter, but you can find me in all of those places. I love to connect. Um, Hope you'll check out the website, subscribe to my newsletter, uh, which I send twice a month. Um, to, to share about all the different things that I'm working on and engaged with um, and also some content that hopefully will um, help you dream a little bit about places to go and things to see. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you. Thank you, Mark and Crystal. It, uh, it was a pleasure to be with you and I hope uh, you'll take care. Thank okay. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye.